Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Ansi Hyvonen from Amphion Loudspeakers. But first of all, do you know about TikTok? Have you ever heard of it? Well, chances are if you're Gen Z and outside the United States, you have. And even if you're in the United States, you might be a big fan of it. This is one of the hottest things going. As a matter of fact, there are over 500 million users in China alone. Now, what it is is a social network, but it's built around video. Basically, you can record 15-second videos. You can string them together into stories, but there's no ads, there's no news, nothing like that. In fact, it was originally all about lip-syncing. So your favorite songs are available. You can lip-sync to them, but now, in fact, there's a lot of dancing and comedy as well. So Facebook saw this and wanted to get in on the action, and they have now launched Lasso. This is actually a standalone app. So it's not part of Facebook, even though Facebook owns it. And they had a very quiet launch. You can sign in through Facebook or Instagram. It's U.S. only right now. And just like TikTok, 15-second videos, no uploads. You can overlay all of the popular songs, and of course the record labels are really happy about that because it's a new licensing deal. There's no AI and there's no filters like TikTok has, but it does have slow motion and fast forward. And again, it's a standalone app, so this is really interesting. But we have to ask ourselves, is this too late? So Facebook realized that it's losing the Gen Z war. I think it's down by about 75% in Gen Z users from 2014. In fact, they're all going to Instagram and they're going to other networks like TikTok. So Facebook wants to get in on the action and they started Lasso as a result. So this might not be in your radar and TikTok probably is not in your radar either, but it's something to take a look at and something to be aware of. Because especially if your music is beginning to get some traction, it may be used by somebody on one of these platforms. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, I was reading an article the other day about the beginning of the modern music business, and I didn't realize that it was started by Bing Crosby, the crooner from the 40s and 30s, and with Bob Hope on the road movies. Yeah, Bing Crosby was a big innovator, and more than you think, and he's responsible in so many ways for the modern music business. And let me explain how. He had a live radio show on, and it had to be done twice a day, once for each coast. And of course, Bing didn't want to do that. He'd rather be out playing golf. So what ended up happening was he was looking for anything to make life easier. So what they started to do is record it on vinyl discs. And this is kind of cool because it also started the radio syndication business as the discs were sent out to other stations all over the country. That being said, if you wanted to edit a show on disc 
it was really difficult because basically you had several discs and you would record onto another vinyl disc and another one. And in some cases, they had as many as 40 before they got to their final mix. Again, you know, you can't edit on a piece of vinyl, so you just had to edit on the fly or basically record on the fly from multiple vinyl discs. So the quality dropped significantly, and so did Bing's audience as well, much to everyone's surprise. Around this time, a guy named Jack Mullen came back from World War II, and he came back with two captured German magnophone recorders. These were the first tape recorders and the first high-quality tape recorders. There's actually some what they call transcription tape recorders around that were just for voice only. But these were high-quality. So we came back with that and 50 reels of tape, the only 50 reels of tape that ever existed. And Bing wanted to use it on his show because, obviously, they'd be able to edit really easily and they get the shows out faster. So what ended up happening was they did this test and it was on one of his shows where they recorded to vinyl disc and to the tape recorder at the same time. And then they listened back to the quality, and the tape recorder won. So now Bing was really into this, and they wanted to get it going. Jack Mullen, in the meantime, was trying to build these things, and he had souped them up to more modern specifications, made them more U.S.-centric, and couldn't sell them to the film industry, believe it or not. The film industry basically said, we have a method that works and we're not interested. But Bing was still really interested and eventually he got Ampex involved. Now Ampex was making broadcast gear, but they got very interested in the new tape recorder. So they got involved. The only problem was they were short on cash. They couldn't make them. So Bing gave them a $50,000 loan in cash to get the manufacturing started. Now, this is equivalent to $500,000. It came in a blank white envelope with nothing else, just $50,000. So, Ampex gets going. 3M then steps in as a tape supplier, and the Ampex Model 200 is born. And all of a sudden, when this becomes a commercial entity, everybody takes notice. The music business, of course, who are doing direct-to-vinyl, they take notice and they think, wow, this is good, we can edit. The film business then begins to take notice, and it took them longer to actually incorporate tape, but eventually they did. But this was actually the beginning of the modern music business, because at this point, this is when the record labels adopted tape. Pretty cool, huh? Affion Loudspeakers has become a favorite of award-winning mixing engineers the world over, and founder and CEO Ansi Hyvonen is my guest today. Ansi spent most of his life as a hi-fi enthusiast who got into building speakers sort of by accident. His speakers were very well respected by that community, but acceptance by the pros, especially by some heavy hitters like Bernie Grumman and Rick Rubin, was a total surprise. Today, the company provides speakers to mixers and composers just about everywhere, even though its speakers are passive and buck the current trend in monitors. In the interview, we talked about the difference between speakers made for hi-fi and pro audio, why passive speakers can provide higher quality reproduction, the use of passive radiators, the finished speaker building tradition, and much more. Ansi and I spoke live from the studio of Vintage King in Los Angeles. Tell me about your background. Uh, company or myself? Yourself first. Um, I fell in love with the audio gear when I was 14. Um, I 
I'm a hi-fi boy. I come from that side. Uh, I never was unable to play anything. You, nobody wants to hear me sing. Uh, but there was always this deep love for, for sound and music. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was 14, my father, I guess he sensed uh, some interest in a young man into the gear like this. So he gave me uh, pretty much free budget to, to, to buy a home home audio system for the family. So that was, I'm never, I'm, the, I'm a very kind of thorough, detailed, do my homework type of guy. So it took a long time before it was time to, to buy anything. And, and uh, it was really, I guess it was money well spent because we actually ended up using those uh, products 20 years. I think they may still have them partially. So. Mm. The speakers have been changed, but the amps may still be there. So. Which amps were they? Uh, Luxman, oh. the original Luxman. Okay, yeah. yeah, good stuff. Yes, so so that's that's kind of how it started. So then it was your love of hi-fi that got you into building speakers, I suppose. Yeah, it's uh, it didn't happen quite that quickly. Um, I was actually um, when I was twenty-five, I finished school. Um, I got a job out of Hong Kong. And, and of course, in Asia, they have uh, how they treat audio is a little bit different how they treat it in, in, the, in the West. I think it's for a lot of the rich Chinese, for example, it's, it's, it's similar to the tea ceremony. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a retreat, it's a way to get away. And, and I've been always fascinated by this emotional context. And, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, to me, music, to me, music is not a frequency curve, it's, it's transform emotion from one person to another. And that's, of course, kind of be the guiding light in, in whatever we've done later on. And, and uh, it kind of gradually happened. Uh, I was helping, as one of the customers I was helping in, uh, in uh, Asia was a small speaker manufacturer out of, out of Finland. Uh, unfortunately, they had taken some German DMARC loans, and, and when the Finnish mark was uh, devalued, they were one of the pre- basically healthy companies that went over. But I, I became friends with a, with, a, with a guy who used to own it. And um, gradually then, uh, I mean, first it was I'm never going to take a leak um, towards the speaker, but uh, five years down the line, the old disease kind of resurfaced again and he started talking about this designer he had met and how he thought maybe it would be time to get some finance but but uh, in those days in Finland if you had made a bankruptcy it was kind of stigma nobody would give mm-hmm. you any money uh, unfortunately unfortunately that has changed uh, I kind of because I was spending my time abroad I saw it as an opportunity that maybe they learned something maybe they don't do the same mistakes again and I ended up, ended up asking that how much money would you actually need to establish a company like that? Because I was, in those days, I was, uh, had moved to Malaysia, was on an expatriate packets, was building my kind of dream system that I was never, never needed, to, needed to change. Uh, became friends with the local Chinese who worked uh, with, with some um, uh, two manufacturers in, in China and how he explained to me how there was also a certain window in the spring when when the tubes were clean enough 
Dubai and then he, I mean that was kind of the level where it started oh. from he was swapping tubes and letting me listen so we became friends and I bought some electronics from him but all the speakers that I would have been okay to listen to uh, were priced to the point where I couldn't justify it yeah maybe I could have had the money but I couldn't justify it to my family to, to yeah, buy yeah. something like that and and everything reasonable it's kind of ah, always something wrong so so I decided that let's let's try to do establish a company because it was the same time this friend of mine was uh, uh, brought up the, the maybe I should do it again. So I, that's that's how it really started. I was never going to be involved. I was just to be just to be an inv investor, but that's kind of not how it turned out to be. <laughs> <laughs> so how long has the company been in existence? And, and I have to say. I haven't been aware of, of Amphion maybe until the last 18 months. Yes, uh, that is, uh, there's a reason for that because the hi-fi and the pro markets are very, still today, very, very two separate things. I think yeah. the world is kind of converging and I think you see more of that. But uh, we are actually a 20-year-old company. Huh? Uh, last summer we were 20, we wow. had a 20-year anniversary. The reason why the pro community has not heard about us was that we really started the pro side slightly by accident, uh, like six years. The development started six years ago. And uh, it was actually a funny story because, of course, in the speaker building business, we had this belief that the perfect speaker is a reversed microphone. Not entirely true because the mics are used to color as well, but you know, as as as, as far as the transducers go, yeah, there's a lot of lot of truth to that. So um, when I say that, a lot of people nod, but but when I ask, do you know any any speaker company and a microphone company who've actually sat at the same table to come up with a transducer pair that speaks the same language? Normally, it's like, hmm, no, not really. Neumann, maybe. Yeah, but they. Yeah, but they kind of purchased the, the speaker part before, so oh, it's, it's not. It. Okay. It, it's, it doesn't count. I, I, I don't think there is a there is a joint de development in yeah. that sense. Um, but uh, now we have two crazy guys out of Finland because what happened was that totally by accident I met or came in contact with Martin Kantola, who is actually I was just uh, one of the dealers, and he's actually one of the guys who is who is named in uh, Bruce Wedeen's books mm. uh, as an he Gantola got his acknowledgement there. And, and Martin is a, is a person who actually uh, built like this Bruce Wedeen signature mics that he was using, mm. using uh, on the vocals exclusively when he was still working. Uh, so Martin in those days was, was uh, showing his, his work at the, in the studio with Bruce Wedeen Master Course in, in Florida. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, it was a really interesting how we met. I, I, I always believe in meeting people because whenever you start working with somebody, unless you're not in the same page regarding sound, I don't think there will be deep enough understanding. Or you, you sooner or later, you start kind of looking at different things. Yeah. Uh, so how it started was that I, I took some of my speakers with me and visited Martin um, and uh, we played some of the stuff. The speakers that I thought were our best actually ended up not being the most in emotional because he picked up some of the 
some of the uh, early two-channel recordings that Bruce has, 19-year-old Swedeen had done yeah. uh, in those days where, where, where they uh, still don't, all they, it was the mono days and he was kind of doing it on the sly because he was wasting double the amount of tape, etc. But, yeah. but uh, the sheer kind of emotion in those came through actually through one of the smaller speakers. Huh. And then I proposed, Martin, that should we actually do a small carry-on kit for you when, so that you can play your, your uh, mic samples in, when you go to, to Florida. And he said, no, they have plenty of stuff there. It's not needed. And uh, then he came back and said that it wasn't the same there. What did you actually mean? And then we together started doing something. Martin actually uh, is a brilliant guy. Um, not only is he very good when it comes to microphones, but, but also the other tripod type. He had some ideas mm -hmm. regarding the other type of transducers. So six months later, when the other course came, he carried on a small pair. Uh, then the phone rings late at night, and, and that's Martin asking how much would this cost? And I'm like, I don't know. We just made it for you to play your mic samples there. Mm, 1500 a pair. Then he tells me what happened, who was there. They had guys like Bernie Grundman, Al Schmidt, Ed Sherney, um, and, and, and Bruce, of course. And, and uh, then uh, I think Martin came back with, I think, six people wanted to buy a pair or something like that. And I said, no, no, no. Time out on this. If guys of this caliber think we have certain angle to this, let's take a time out and, and really start digging up this for real. And and that's I what's humbling. I was just telling the guys that what's humbling to me is this openness of the pro community uh, to me. Now looking back, it's totally crazy that people like like Bernie. And, and Rick Rubin would open their doors when there's this hi-fi boy from Finland with this prototype. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, but it actually ended up being very, very good uh, in terms of understanding what is needed, where people are, because even if you want to do something or believe that you can do something a little bit differently uh, or maybe even a little bit better, you have to understand that the step cannot be too too big from what people are used to because yeah, otherwise yeah. nobody will use it yeah and and uh, it's so it's that's that's really how it started let's talk about the differences between the hi-fi products you you make and the pro products the way i always understood it was the everyday abuse that happens in the studio mm -hmm. means that you need different transducers and and you need some protection and because it's not the normal listening environment. Mm -hmm. So one can't necessarily translate to the other. I guess pro could translate to, to hi-fi, but not mm -hmm. necessarily the other way mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Um, I don't think it would have been possible to do what we've done 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But as I said, the world is kind of becoming similar. The rooms are getting smaller in, 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 in pros. The studios are not only professionally done, treated places, they can be also temporary place somewhere, even somebody's bedroom that yep. he fixed. So in that sense, acoustically, the environment is getting more similar. 
yes, sure, there are there are some probably some truth to what you're saying, but but I I still see that that the world has been quickly going away from that wide large studios where only the on-axis responses count and and really the acoustician balances the product yeah. uh, to it needs to work in different environments because especially today um when you buy something i mean a monitor to me is a pair of sh like a pair of shoes if you buy something you find you find something you like and you buy it you want to break it in and and of course the women don't understand my example, but but as a guy I think we want to kind of wear them until they yeah, yeah. they fall off our feet. Yeah. Um, and uh, we as a manufacturer we never felt that there should be different sound in in different size of mastering. I mean it was always a question of how do we open a large clean window into music. I mean as a speaker manufacturer I'm not really satisfied until we are forgotten it should be about the music and how music talks to you not about how the speaker sounds. Well, the speaker disappears yes then. yes yeah. yes yeah well okay well, let's talk a little bit about the philosophy then of amphion where the rest of the industry has gone to powered speakers mm -hmm. amphions are passive and there obviously must be a reason for that we are all about the end result and and today i mean you never know about the future and and i think the nice thing about being small is that you can be highly flexible and quick and nimble in a very fast moving world um, and i think that's when we are talking monitors we should always also remember what are they used for and 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 how has this let's say playback environment changed uh, I think it was a little bit difficult to control that environment when when we kind of had the radio play the car and a little boombox to worry about. But now the playback industry has becoming, or, or the playback environment has be becoming very fragmented. We have to worry about mobile phones with flat screen TVs, laptops, cheap mm -hmm. in-ears, you name it in addition to, to high-quality devices. So, so uh, maybe you, the, the tools and, and how they work need to, need to be rethinked a little bit. I think, uh, uh, and also the music environment has changed. I mean, uh, it's interesting to me that the NS10 uh, is still the go-to thing for many, even if we talk about Oh, everything needs to be active. Yeah, that's not active. It's not even a pro product. It just happened to be a a, a hi-fi product that somebody put on a, on a console and felt that it does tell good things about the recording. But I think it's also it was more useful in those days when guitar was the main instrument. Mm -hmm. So I don't True. understand this. We have to stick to something because it's been used for for 50 years, yeah. maybe it's okay for guitars and, 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 and things like this, but definitely monitoring has to be moving with, with the times. And uh, going back to the active-passive, I wouldn't 
we have to remember that 85 to 90% of our customers buy the whole package. They mm -hmm. buy the amp, they buy the cabling, buy, they buy the speaker. Yes, it's, it's a passive design, but it's, you could also say it's a closed power design. Mm. So in that sense, it's not a very different from a customer point of view. You still put your XLRs in and, and it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, yes, the active speaker manufacturers have been super good in, in, in talking about the good sides of active monitoring. Um, I tend to agree with them that they, when they say that the, the active crossover is, is superior to a traditional passive crossover. Yes, we don't use a traditional way of, of building our crossovers. Uh, but on the other hand, nobody talks about the fact that, that what happens if you put transformers inside the box close to the voice coils. Um, when it comes to amplification, uh, is it better to have an have a, a uh, active speaker with pretty much kind of generic module, or is it better to use what we use particular in our case to use a module which was actually developed using your own gear. That's a funny story because, because yeah. uh, it, it took me, I mean, the, 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 the speakers came first. And of course, in order, in order to hit the price performance points needed in this, in this industry, you need, it's difficult to go with anything else but D-Class. And I listened to everything uh, that was available in the market a few years ago. Uh, um, and I didn't like any of them. Um, then finally, I found a manufacturer, small manufacturer out of Sweden. And I called them and, and explained who I am and, and, and that uh, we are unfair and we are now starting to think, oh, thinking that we would launch a pro line and we would be interested in using this module. Uh, as an amp, they said, yeah, we know you. We have used to hi-fi products to develop this module. So, okay. Then it was kind of easier to understand that maybe there's a, there's a reason why they work together. Yeah. So, uh, it's uh, never say never. You never know. But, but today, the reason why our products are passive is that we actually believe we can reach higher performance that way. Well, I understand that completely. One of the, my pet peeves of active speakers is the fact that sometimes you need to turn them up loud, mm -hmm. and there's usually a limiter in that sounds bad. Mm -hmm. For me, and for most people I know, they don't listen long at that level, but mm -hmm. you do have to check a couple things, mm -hmm. so you turn it up for a bit. Mm -hmm. But uh, many speakers just sound bad mm -hmm. when that happens. Mm -hmm. So at least with the passive design with an external amplifier, think it's a better match all the way around mm -hmm. in terms of you know what you have in terms of headroom yeah def i mean one of the things that has been good i think in, in it's easier to control in an active des design what is the sound you're looking for mm -hmm. as a manufacturer but we have done that through kind of this system approach yeah. um so it's yeah but it's it seems to be working i mean there's been a little bit funny pairings um, let's say I would not necessarily uh, take a speaker like NS10, uh, which is somewhat bright by nature, yeah. and then pair it with the Bryston, which is equally kind of open and, and, and cheerful. It's, it's very easy to come up with a combo that is actually pretty, 
pretty tiring to listen to. Yeah, many uh, people go that way too. They, That's uh, well, it's become. I, I think it's one of the reasons that that is that a nobody has the time to kind of mix and match. And sure. you, I mean, you're there. You're not there to uh, to find a favorite combo. You're there to find something that you can work with. And of course. Uh, Bryston has been the, basically the only amp that that has been available in the in the market. Yeah. Uh, because probably their long, I mean, reliability and very long long uh, warranties and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's actually interesting that that a lot of the NS10 guys they say that hey, I mean, it's I never thought this is possible, but uh, this little amp 100, what you have or 500, they actually give me more dimensions and 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 a little bit uh, more pleasant tonality without losing any of the of yeah. the uh, information tell me about the waveguide was that always a feature or is that something that just no it's it's been, no it's been it's been day one like that oh it has uh yeah and and we do uh, we're pretty stubborn um as a manufacturer in in if we believe in something, we kind of stick to it. I mean, it's it's being passive, it's uh, or, or or being stupid enough that you can actually go against totally the market and and, and offer passive designs to a to a product, uh, to a professional market and actually get your ideas through is a good example of that. Uh, Waveguide is is very much um, part of the Finnish bigger building tradition, and it started from from the ideas of controlling directivity and, and, and tr coming up with speakers that work in more predictable manner in, in different spaces. Um, we use it somewhat differently to, to some of the others in a way that we also not only control the dispersion but also lower the crossover point. Uh, and, and this, of course, is a very... Uh, important and, and overlooked thing. I mean, a lot of the speak, a lot of the even speaker manufacturers, but but also customers view speaker as an electrical device. Mm. For yeah. us, it's an acoustical device first. And whatever we can achieve acoustically, we don't have to try to fix electrically. And, and, and one of the funny things, if we kind of just use our common sense uh, and, and remember that the speaker should be really talking to the ear and not to the microphone, uh, and human ear actually has uh, its most precise area between two to five thousand hertz. So, is this a good place for a crossover point? I mean, we don't see a chair sofa manufacturer putting a seam in the middle of the cushion where everybody can see. They they actually prefer to hide hide it to the side, yeah. and that's what we do with a waveguide. Um, with the help of that amplification effect, we actually can reduce the distortion of the tweeter because we don't have to drive it as, as hard. Uh, we can lower the crossover point to a point which actually turns speakers to work in a, in a point source manner. Mm. And that's, of course, the only correct way of reproducing the sound. That's how nature does it. And, and if we would be using a higher crossover point and putting that seam in the middle of the chair, like 85% of the speaker manufacturers do, you'll never get total integration in the drivers and that's actually one of the 
biggest challenges of speaker building is that how do you integrate these drivers, which are very different in terms of moving mass dispersion, even uh, sonic properties of the material used? How do you how do you come up with a cohesive unit uh, out of those? And and waveguide really helps a lot in that respect. I mean, you can get away uh, with a lot of the cabinet diffractions. You can. You can align your, your voice coils so you can keep your crossovers much, much more simple because actually the, the timing properties are correct from the, from the starting point onwards. You don't have to, to delay everything, anything in a, in a filter, etc. So there's a lot of benefits. How about the passive radiator? Was that always a feature? No, no. That, 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 is, that became when we started uh, developing the Pro range. Um, and uh, one of the things which I don't understand, um, it's not only half-jokingly when I say that the, that the reflex boxes should be actually banned from music making because you can never control them properly. And if we go back to the NS10, people tend to forget that one of the reasons it worked was that it was a closed box. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and because the problem with the reflex is that you're never going to separate the initial signal from the tail that follows that. And, and, uh, and in especially nowadays when the modern music is, is becoming increasingly bass intensive, you really need to, need to, to hear what's happening there. Also, um, I would go as far as that I hear the effects of a using a reflex in a lot of the music that was made in, at a certain period because it was very typical because your speaker doesn't have the clarity in the lower mids. So you overclean things and you come out, let's say, how, how often do you hear male voices which actually have a nice chest re yeah, register? Yeah, right. and, and, and a lot of that is due to the fact that the monitors simply don't have the resolution in that area to, to tell what is the real signal and what's the tail. And, and, and of course, what the problem is, if you don't have the energy in the lower mids uh, to counterbalance the upper mids, which you kind of need in a lot of the, the modern productions in order to, that this, your song to be heard in a radio, uh, you, you, you got up. You, you, you tended to come up with a lot of very bright mixes. Yeah. Uh, so the passive is a, I feel it's a good compromise. I mean, of course, we have to speak a building always. We have to remember that it's kind of walk, walking a tightrope. It's always a compromise. It's a, I mean, the only place where speakers are, are perfect is the marketing material. And, and after that, it's a, it's, a, it's a question of what does the manufacturer go for? Um, and in our case, the passive is a, is a, is a good compromise in, in coming very close to the, how the closed boxes would sound, but still being able to do that in a, in a relatively small uh, box that you can actually place somewhere. You know, it's funny, when I think back to the early hi-fi days of the, the 60s and early 70s, I remember the A&R speakers, mm. which were huge mm. at the mm. time. They were closed, yes, and uh, there was a lot of them. The more I think about it, it's funny how you get away from things, how the, the industry will move one way. Yes. If I, as I look around here, everything's mm. ported. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really funny 
uh, a lot of the things are also dictated by marketing forces. Yeah. I mean, if we, especially sound, uh, what I find it's, it's fascinating about that, um, f at times frustrating as well, is that I don't know any other area of human involvement where we can take half a century old recording which in certain ways often wipes the floor with the 80 percent of the modern, modern yeah, stuff yeah i mean it doesn't happen with automobiles it doesn't happen with clothing yeah. uh, or whatever it doesn't even happen with food but it does happen with music and 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 and, uh, and recording especially yeah, but uh, we of course at certain point we really had the Almost, you could say that the most clever people of human guide working with with the audio technology, and and uh, that uh, that's not the case today. Your speakers also use aluminum woofers, yes. aluminum cone yes. woofers. Yes, is that because they're lighter in mass? Yes, uh, I mean, if we're talking about aluminum drivers or or passive radiators, uh, what I find or or two-way, three-way designs. What mm. I really find interesting is that the people get into these heated discussions about which is better. Uh, somebody likes the silk dome, some, he can never listen to the titanium or any, any metal dome. Same applies, it needs to be paper, it cannot be aluminium. Um, no, it needs to be a three-way. Uh, but never in these discussions people remember the context. I mean, the, it's about how do you apply certain things. Uh, yes, if our crossover point would be 3K, we would never use an aluminum mid-woofer because it would start ringing like crazy. Yeah. Uh, but because of we cross at 1.6, uh, it's actually we can use the good qualities of aluminum. It's, it's light, it's rigid. Um, um, and and then um, it actually becomes a very viable viable mm. alternative. Uh, the same thing applies to a a, a tweeter. Uh, if I would be using, if we would be using tweeter without the waveguide, uh, which tremendously helps how it couples to the air, how what sort of levels of, of power we need to feed into that. Um, I think the decisions would be totally different if mm. we would be using a, 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 a surface-mounted tweeter. Yeah. Uh, same thing applies to, to the two-way, three-way discussion is that, yeah, there are benefits to doing both. I mean, two-way is super simple, elegant if you do it properly. Uh, and and three-way, once you kind of go into a bigger system, um, that's, uh, that has a certain benefits. And that's why we have, for example, uh, solve that in a way that that uh, which is better two-way three-way i say both and that's what we do in our base systems because they kind of turn turn the two-way monitor into a three-way full range i was just going to ask you about that they're not subwoofers per se no. you call them base extenders right yeah there's i mean it's a little place a play on words we didn't use want to use the word subwoofer because uh that it has a connotation. It, it, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a box that, that booms along there, yeah. have, has its own life from the rest of the signal, and, yeah. and that's not what we are about. 
uh, and 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 the base is of course it's a something you can put something on top, top uh, and and uh, or or low, low frequencies. So so um, again very different ideas. We strongly believe that you need to have the stereo information all the way down. Mm. Me too. Um, I mean I don't really know when part of the movie format became part of the music two channel music making system. Oh, uh, I do. I know the story. Okay, okay, yeah. good. See, you have to learn something new every day. Well, when I was doing a lot of surround sound, my mentor was Tom Holman. Okay. If you ever go and see THX, yes. Tom Holman Experiment. Okay. So we worked for Lucasound. And he told me what happened was, they were doing the second Star Wars movie. And on the stage, there was Jabba the Hutt that was mm -hmm. talking. And mm -hmm. there was lots of low frequencies going on. But they couldn't hear it on the stage. Okay. When he took the roughs home, the dailies, and listen at home on his big system, all of a sudden he could hear all this stuff going on. Right. So he came back and said, well, look, we have these subwoofers that we're using for the boom channel. Mm -hmm. Can we just also use them as an extender, right. as bass extension as well? And that's how the 5.1 came, okay. came about. He called it the 5.1. He's the godfather of it, really. Right. But was he using one or two? Probably two. Probably two. And that I can yeah. live with. Yeah. But the single... Single mono sub with the stereo speakers, that's where I have my problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. especially finding the right place yes. for it, which yeah. is impossible. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of beliefs in, okay, we don't hear the direction of the sound under 100 hertz. Uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah, it's like I that. don't agree either. And, and there's, there's a lot of harmonic information. It's not only 100, it's actually yeah. quite a bit higher. So, so I, I think it's... Uh, and and I, what's really fascinating about the whole being involved with audio is that I actually do believe that we are much, as human beings, we're much more precise than we actually believe we, I mean, that, that the measurement kit, yeah. uh, uh, it, the measurement, measurements are pretty rudimentary. Um, and, and, and yes, you have to get them right, because if we don't, the speaker is not right, or the product in general is not right. But we do believe very much the same way as uh, Mr. Rupert Neve, who knows something about the, the sound making. I mean, I think he once said that the excellence in performance is not automatically excellence. Or excellence in measurement doesn't automatically mean excellence in performance. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I fully believe in that. There's been very weird situations at, at, at uh, R&D listening sessions when something you definitely should not hear uh, was omitted because it just killed the, the magic. Yeah. Uh, but yes, going back to the subwoofers, very strongly believe stereo signal all the way down. Um, also, the idea of the basses is that they are easy to place. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, because I believe that we actually hear the direction or integration and 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 especially the, the the facing properties much clearer than we think it's physical physical proximity actually plays a much bigger part than we actually believe uh, that's why the base 125 225 are actually under the monitor Mm. Uh, so you could actually think it as a as a three way full range. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Which also, makes all all the more sense. Yeah. Also, yeah. the flex, even if it's a single box 
subwoofer that is placed always on the center line, it's a stereo sub. Yeah. And, and also the reason why the drivers are actually at the top and it's not a cube that is sitting on the floor, it's that I actually believe, of course, I mean, there's no measurements that you, you can, you can um, or at least I'm not aware if, if, if there's a measurement way or, or way to measure this, but, but 35 years of experience has shown that, that I think our system, hearing system, works in such a way that it corrects things to a certain degree. So it, things don't have to be 100% correct, but they have to be close enough for the, for the brain-ear connection to kind of fill the gaps. And, and, uh, and I noticed during the development of the Flex, for example, that, that uh, if it would be on the floor as a normal cube, it wouldn't work the, mm. the same way at all. But because it's a high box that is actually the elevation starts being pretty similar to the to the monitors, even if if you uh, then create the sound from slightly different places, it's uh, it integrates very well. Well, we like speaker stands, so that's, mm. that's yes, yes, that's excellent, yes, yeah. very cool. So, last question: What's the best piece of business advice that either someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? I think they they are. Few. Um, I don't know if it's a business ab- advice, but uh, but because I strongly believe that you can only do your your best work if you are happy as a as a as a human being, and and because especially in the pro industry, it's it's very much a family. Mm-hmm. So so I think it's one of the things best things I've heard that it's. It's from it get, came from a very very uh, successful Japanese uh, gentleman. He said that um, it's nice to be important, but it's much more important to be nice. You can find out more about ANSI and Amphion at Amphion.fi. Amphion A M P H I O N dot F I. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Oh!